Dre Wise here. Dre Wise Calculer. 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 Dre Wise. What up, Spotify? What up, social media? What Now, today is Friday the weekend, and the time is 2.55 p.m. Children are coming home from school. People are leaving work. It's after work rush hour, all that, the third shift, all that. Today is Friday. The date is, uh, let's see, December 13th, 2019. Now, let's go to uh, a little bit. What up, Anchor FM? What up, Spotify? Follow me on Facebook at EnjoyWiseConcuer. Follow me on Twitter at EnjoyWise underscore Conqueror. Follow me on Instagram at EnjoyWise underscore Conqueror. Also, also subscribe to my YouTube channel and I put together exercise videos. That is my YouTube is DeeperWise, 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 Capital. Late one evening in the year 1603, James Stewart, King of Scotland and heir to the throne of all England, was roused from his bed. Outside his bedchamber stood an exhausted and bloodied messenger. The nobleman, hoping to win a bit of royal favor, had ridden three days straight to Edinburgh to be the first to bring him the news that would soon shake the entire English-speaking world. Elizabeth, good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, was dead. Britain's only monarch over the past 44 years had indeed passed. And now James Stuart, King James VI of Scotland, would soon be crowned James I, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. The contrast between the two monarchs, Elizabeth and James, couldn't have been more dramatic. Elizabeth was an icon and a legend, a beloved and imperial ruler resolutely unmarried and childless, a master politician who had presided over a golden age, the Elizabethan age. 
but her policies and her leadership had, like the queen herself, grown old and tired. Her motto was, Semper Edom, always the same. So England was ripe for change. such a time as this. James Stuart, son of the beautiful and ambitious Mary Queen of Scots, a family man, an avid hunter and outdoorsman, and a bona fide intellectual. England had never seen a king quite like him. James was a published scholar, an accomplished linguist, an aspiring poet, a patron of the stage and of the academy. A man who once said, were I not king, I would be a university man. But it was one scholarly enthusiasm in particular that would forever seal the new king's place in history. He was fascinated with texts of the Bible. Even as a young man, he liked to amuse himself with the crafting of his own translations of scripture as he moved comfortably among English, Latin, Greek, and French. England's new king, while brilliant, did not cut a particularly royal figure. He was pale and unattractive, red-headed and red-faced. His court portraits usually show a thin face framed by an unkempt auburn mustache and a pained, somewhat suspicious expression. But however ill-suited James may have appeared for the formal trappings and affairs of state, he was a man of no small talent and vision, and his ascendance to the throne marked the dawning of a new England. His personal choice of a Latin motto was Beatae Pacificae, from the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers. While historians have long debated the successes of his political efforts to win a lasting peace, it would be his Bible, the Bible whose translation he would authorize, and with which his name would be forever associated, that would be his greatest gift to humankind, the most powerful expression of King James' vision of world peace. Days. It is a time of magic, pageantry, warmth, generosity, and love. For many of us, our fondest childhood memories revolve around the traditions of Christmas. It is a time that many around the world celebrate as the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior and Messiah of mankind. In recent years, however, the spiritual holiday has become a time of mass marketing and crass commercialism. Incredibly, many businesses derive more than half their yearly income during this period. The process of gift-giving, once thought to have come from the story of the wise men who offered gifts to the newborn Christ, has evolved into the buying frenzy we see today during the month of December. But what about the other Christmas traditions? Have you ever wondered why we decorate the Christmas tree? Why we light the Yule log? Why we hang the mistletoe? And why we teach our children to believe in Santa Claus? In the next hour, you will discover the true origins of Christmas. You may be 
surprised or even shocked to learn the source of your favorite holiday traditions. Chances are you'll never look at Christmas the same ever again. during late December, the days are at their shortest lengths and the nights are at their longest. For those of the pagan world, this has always been the greatest time of the year to celebrate and practice the works of darkness. The pagan calendar identifies this period as the winter solstice. It was during the pre-Christian midwinter pagan celebrations of Scandinavia's Norsemen where today's Christmas traditions began. As a means of honoring the pagan sex and fertility god Yule, a 12-day celebration during the month of December was inaugurated. A large single log considered to be a phallic idol was lit on fire and kept burning for 12 days. Animal or human sacrifices were offered in the fire on each of those days. Wild, delirious reveling accompanied the daily sacrifices as drunken participants defiantly strove to make contact with spirits. A thousand miles away in pre-Christian Rome, celebrants were paying homage to their own gods during the winter solstice. Witchcraft traditions hold that a number of pagan gods were given birth during this period, including Dionysus, Attis, and Baal, chief male god of fertility and licentiousness. Another pagan god from Persia, identified as Mithra, was said to have been born specifically on December 25th. Mithra was the god of the unconquerable sun, the god of the light between heaven and earth, worshipped at that time by an influential Roman cult. His birth symbolized an end to the long nights and a return to the dominance of the sun. During the month-long winter solstice celebration, courts in Rome were closed. Any and all crimes were allowed. Homosexuality, cross-dressing, and uncontrolled debauchery reigned supreme. Rome's order was turned upside down. Even children were allowed to join in the drunken orgies as part of the Juvenalia celebration. By 270 AD, the Roman Emperor Aurelian had made it official, setting aside a seven-day period from December the 17th through the 24th, culminating in an exchange of gifts on December the 25th to celebrate the birth of the sun god. This Roman orgy to end all orgies later became known as Saturnalia, in honor of the god Saturn, the god of excess. Roman soldiers invading Britain brought with them their pagan orgiistic traditions. Upon taking root in England, Saturnalia became known as the festival of fools reigned over by the Lord of Misrule. By the 4th century, the influential government-sanctioned Church of Rome, unable to outlaw the growing number of pagan practices, chose instead to adopt them into their so-called official Christianity. The Church believed this would attract more pagans to their fold. Up until this time, the birthday of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, had not been celebrated at all. Ignoring scriptures, however, indicating that the birth probably did not occur during the winter, 
the church nevertheless confused biblical history and made Jesus' birthday coincide with the pagan god Mithra. The birth date of the sun god had now become the birth date of the son of God. It was hoped that the pagan celebrations of Saturnalia would merge into this new legally sanctioned form of Christianity. The church's practice of changing the dates of Christian events to coincide with pagan festivals continued, and by the 7th century, Pope Gregory I had ordered Augustine of Canterbury to incorporate any and all pagan practices and customs into the expanding Roman Catholic Church. During the Middle Ages, the debased Mardi Gras atmosphere of what was now known as Christ's Mass had reached a fevered pitch. Common practices included open sex in the streets, rioting, murder, and a number of pagan druidic Halloween rituals. This blood-drenched celebration got so out of hand that by 1652, following the execution of King Charles I, Christ's Mass was finally outlawed in England. A religious reform movement began sweeping the country led by Puritan Oliver Cromwell. The Puritans took the biblical mandate seriously, which commanded that Christianity remain pure and separate from paganism. Despite their noble efforts, the celebration simply went underground, and by 1656, after only four short years under the ban, the public's demand for the legalization of Christ's Mass had become insurmountable. The appointment of Charles II to the throne restored England's monarchy and with it the celebration of Christ's Mass. The Puritans had lost England, but they held high hopes for the new world. When the first settlers came from England, uh, they were, for the most part, Puritans. They came here for religious freedom. They came here to be free to worship God without a hierarchy and without the corruption of the organized church that they had known before. And uh, when they came, they came with the clear knowledge of the danger of these pagan practices that had become so dear to the hearts of uh, their ancestors. Following England's lead in 1659, the colonies of America had likewise outlawed Christmas. For 200 years, the clergy in New England battled to keep the riotous celebrations honoring the pagan god Saturn from infiltrating the New World. The Reverend Cotton Mather had warned in a Christmas Day sermon in 1712, Can you in your conscience think that your Holy Savior is honored by hard drinking, lewd reveling, and by a mass fit for none but Borcus or Saturn? But the public's taste for sin and revelry persisted. In 1828, gang rioting during the Saturnalia-like Christmas celebrations got so bad that cities such as New York were forced to institute a professional police force for the first time in order to control the savagery. Christmas was not only not widely celebrated, in many cases, uh, many places, Christmas celebrations were actually outlawed. And this was because of uh, the attitude of many of the churches who regarded it as primarily as a pagan celebration and as a reproach to the Lord. By the mid-19th century, American churches were the last remaining holdout in the war against the validation of Christmas. However, they too finally succumbed as a result of the efforts of the American Sunday School Society, 
who began advocating Christmas programs for children as a method of filling the pews. The society argued that children could be taught about the birth of Christ through the reenactment of the nativity. They also offered candy and treats to the children as a means of enticing families into accepting the holiday despite its notorious history and blatantly pagan roots. The successful technique of bribing children with candy would later be used on an unsuspecting American populace in the effort to promote the acceptance of the pagan rituals of Halloween. However, it was the work of England's most popular writer, Charles Dickens, whose ghostly 1843 book, A Christmas Carol, cemented the Christmas holiday in the hearts of Americans forever. Dickens' well-loved story made the pagan Christmas feasts, shining trees, glittering shops, and family warmth irresistible to those wanting to experience the holiday. Coming to America in 1867 to promote his work, Charles Dickens packed theatres as he read his story to cheering audiences around the country. A Christmas Carol gripped America and destroyed any final attempt to stop the evolution of Christmas. By 1875, the Puritans had been beaten and by 1890, all American states had voted to make Christmas a legal holiday. Today's tradition of the Christmas Yule Log stems directly from the worship of the pre-Christian Scandinavian fertility god Yule. The burning of this phallic idol is also responsible for the concept of the 12 days of Christmas which represented the 12 daily sacrifices offered up in the Yule Log's flames. Another uh, good example of the uh, pagan elements of Christmas is the whole concept of Yule and the Yule Log. The, uh, the very term is derived from uh, a Norse god, Yule, spelled J-U-L. And uh, uh, every year around Christmas time, uh, a huge log was uh, uh, cut down and uh, fashioned into a uh, fertility symbol and then burned uh, for 12 days and on each successive day a, a, a new sacrifice to the god Yule was performed uh, uh, in the fire and a new sacrificial victim was, uh, was burned to death. Uh, sometimes but not always these sacrificial victims were uh, human beings. And the whole uh, notion of the 12 days of Christmas also comes to us from this uh, Norse pagan tradition. In an attempt to blur the origins of this horrific ritual, the Church of Rome placed the first day of the Mass of Christ on December 25th and the 12th day on January the 6th. Despite no scriptural references for January the 6th, it was selected as the day the wise men supposedly arrived to offer gifts to the newborn Christ. This day then has become known as Epiphany. During the Dark Ages, the European custom of putting an oil-lighted wick lamp in the windows during the 12 days of Christmas signified to neighbors that the occupants were participating in the pagan worship of the phallic idol Yule. In today's commercialism, this is where we get the tradition of decorating our houses with Christmas lights. The Yule Log custom was originally brought over to America by Scandinavian immigrants during the 1600s. And despite attempts to ban the tradition, it has stayed with us to this very day. Today, 
When we wish someone Yuletide greetings, we are in a sense invoking the power of the fertility god Yule upon that person. celebrations, holly and other greens were hung over doorways as part of a pagan ritual to ward off evil. To deck the halls with boughs of holly was to acknowledge the powers of the nature gods. According to Wiccan rituals, placing holly or other greens in the shape of a circle or wreath accentuated its magical power. Similarly, mistletoe, when used in the casting of Wiccan or Druidic spells, could render a woman helpless and open to sexual exploitation. This is where we get our custom of hanging mistletoe in doorways today, and if a woman is caught underneath, she may be kissed and must not resist. The fir tree, uh, the mistletoe, uh, all of these things uh, typically uh, are come from uh, uh, overtly uh, pagan traditions, uh, in, typically in, from Northern Europe, German, Norse, in uh, English. Likewise, evergreen trees have always represented sex and fertility in pagan cultures. During the winter solstice, trees would be chopped down, brought inside, set up, and decorated as idols for worship. The Christmas tree was regarded uh, as, a, as a sacred tree. Uh, the, uh, the pagans of Northern Europe uh, typically uh, worshipped trees. They uh, regarded trees uh, and groves as sacred. So uh, uh, the bringing of the tree into the house would be a way of uh, bringing this uh, supernatural uh, source of blessing uh, into your home. That was, that was the whole idea that there were, there were spirits uh, who resided in the trees. In the Middle Ages, the tradition of the winter solstice Christmas tree primarily took root in Germany. During his reign, King George I, himself of German extraction, brought the custom to Victorian England. German immigrants settling in Pennsylvania did the same in America during the early 1800s. In 1848, the London Illustrated News published this famous engraving depicting Queen Victoria and her royal family beside a decorated Christmas tree. And within a few years, nearly every English household had their own tree in allegiance to the monarchy. By 1900, the US Forest Service estimated that at least one in five homes in America had adopted the Christmas tree tradition. Thousands of years earlier, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, warned against this pagan practice in the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the ways of the heathen, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, they deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. Santa Claus is another uh, good example of a pagan element of, of Christmas. Santa Claus, as we know him today, is a, uh, an amalgamation of several different traditions. But uh, in most cultures throughout the world, uh, you will find the existence of what is known as hearth gods. Uh, gods who uh, guard uh, the hearth and the chimney and keep the fires burning, make sure the food cooks properly and the people are warm, and what have you. And at a certain time of year, 
uh, in the middle of winter, typically, uh, the hearth god dressed in red will come down the chimney to reward those who uh, have pleased him during the course of the previous year and to uh, lay uh, curses or hexes or other forms of uh, uh, punishment upon uh, people who have displeased him. The concept of Santa Claus has had a long and winding history with a number of diverse cultures contributing to the composite character we have today. Beginning once again in Scandinavia, Santa's original incarnation was in the form of Odin, the pagan god of thunder a tall fellow with a long flowing beard who inhabited the spirit-infested Nordic forests. Odin would travel the sky during the winter solstice deciding who would die and who would prosper. Most believers were frightened at this particular time of year. In England, Odin eventually evolved into Father Christmas, who, crowned with sprigs of holly, traveled to the countryside getting roaring drunk as part of the Festival of Fools celebration. Frequently, he would be accompanied by a horned goat, ironically the biblical symbol of those who reject the salvation of Jesus Christ. According to the traditions of the Church of Rome, there was a Turkish bishop named Nicholas who hailed from Myra in Asia Minor during the 4th century. He was known as the patron saint of seafaring men. Over the centuries, as the legend began to unfold, it was rumored that St. Nicholas had actually captured the devil himself, put him in chains, and made him his personal servant. Recognized in various cultures as Krampus, Beelzebub, or Zwart Pete, Black Peter, this assistant of St. Nicholas is best known by his German name, Necht Ruprecht. Described as a hideous horned creature, the servant Ruprecht was a dark and sinister figure who stood in stark contrast to the saintly Nicholas. Somehow, Father Christmas's companion, the horned goat, had metamorphosized into the foreboding horned devil called Ruprecht. As St. Nicholas traveled from house to house, inquiring about the behavior of children, Ruprecht would drop candy and gifts down the chimney into the good children's shoes which had been placed there. It was from this story that we get our tradition of hanging stockings on the mantle at Christmas time. If able to recite a verse or demonstrate a skill for St. Nicholas, the child would receive a gift. If unable to remember a verse or if the child had been bad, he or she would receive a switch or a whip. Ruprecht also carried a large sack which he would frequently use to haul away the really bad boys and girls. As more and more Christian churches began combining the pagan rituals of the winter solstice with the celebration of the birth of Christ, emphasis on St. Nicholas's role began to shift. Some cultures began to downplay the role of St. Nicholas, but surprisingly retained Ruprecht. Eventually, Necht Ruprecht was made the companion and servant to the Christ child himself. In this scenario, the devil is actually given the title Venoxman or Santa Claus. 19th century writer Theodore Storm, in his story about Necht Ruprecht, even go so far as to describe the switches given to the children by Ruprecht as tools to be used in sadomasochistic rituals. Soon, the image of Ruprecht would fade from the Christmas tradition, but not his sadistic influence. Many of the early depictions of Santa Claus portrayed him not as a jolly gift giver, but of an unfriendly disciplinarian complete with a ready switch or whip. One of the problems with the Christmas gift thing for children 
is that it really is a religious teaching, a wrong religious teaching, because it teaches them that if they're nice, they get the gifts. If they're naughty, they don't. Or in my case, I was taught that he would leave us a bundle of switches. Uh, isn't that interesting? Uh, it's a salvation by uh, my own personal virtue. But, but there's a second thing wrong with it, and that is that they're going to get those gifts whether they're naughty or nice, because most parents love their children and, and won't, wouldn't dream of, quote, ruining their Christmas, and they're not going to ruin Christmas, they're going to give those children the gifts anyway, and some, sooner or later those thinking children are going to realize, I wasn't very nice, but I got the gift anyway. So it isn't important to be nice, it isn't important to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. German immigrants coming to America during the 1620s tried to influence the New World with the stories of St. Nicholas and his gift-giving companion, Necht Ruprecht. But somehow the idea just didn't take hold until almost 200 years later. In 1819, America's best-selling author, Washington Irving, used his influence to promote St. Nicholas in a popular Christmas story titled Brace Bridge Hall. Consulting Irving's writings, Episcopalian minister Clement Clark Moore penned a decidedly secular tale called A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1822. Later retitled The Night Before Christmas, Moore's poem was based on the tales of German and Dutch immigrants who had come to America. Intended originally only for his own children, Moore's story was published in the Troy Sentinel in New York and became an overnight sensation. Gone were the bishop's remnant of St. Nicholas. He was now a jolly old elf imbued with supernatural powers. Moore had also replaced Nicholas's companion, the horned necked Ruprecht, with eight horned magical reindeer. As the popularity of the night before Christmas grew, Moore became increasingly concerned that the story's emphasis on the supernatural and its disregard for Christ would reflect poorly on his position as a minister. As a result, he refused to take credit for its creation until the story became so popular that he could no longer resist. Forty years later, illustrator Thomas Nast, political cartoonist for Harper's Weekly, seared the image of Santa Claus into the minds of the world by creating a drawing which combined Moore's jolly old elf with images of St. Nicholas taken from his own native Bavaria. By 1880, Santa was a thoroughly secularized folk hero who had become increasingly irresistible to retailers worldwide. One factor that has contributed to uh, the paganization of Christmas, the complete paganization of Christmas, has been the element of commercialism. Uh, it may seem odd to think of it in that context, but uh, remember that Christ himself identified the love of money as a spiritual force in and of itself. And where it comes into play, it has a kind of naturally hostile effect on, uh, on the gospel and the, uh, uh, the Christian faith. So the commercialization of Christmas has helped to highlight the pagan elements and to uh, drive the overtly Christian elements further underground. To me, the most obscene thing about Christmas celebrations and customs as we know them is that as a result of these things, Jesus is displaced in the hearts of children by Santa Claus. The love, affection, appreciation, trust, the, the desire to emulate these things that they should have in their hearts and minds as growing children for Jesus himself, to whom they owe everything. 
instead this has been stolen this has been uh, raped out of their hearts in a sense and displaced by the myth of Santa Claus he takes the place of God or of Jesus Christ in the special world that is Christmas uh, he has supernatural knowledge of, uh, of your history, he has supernatural knowledge of, uh, of your present, of your attitudes. He's keeping a list. He knows who's not even nice. Your parents don't even know that. Uh, he's obviously got some, uh, some conduit to knowledge that is uh, beyond the human. Uh, and he, uh, he flies through the air, uh, capable of visiting every place on the globe in the course of a single night. In many, many ways, Santa exhibits supernatural qualities that uh, provide a kind of a surrogate deity or a substitute for, uh, for God or for Christ. Myths, by definition, evolve and change and things are added. Uh, we, we used to have a Santa Claus figure uh, that was confused with Saint Nicholas and confused with other pagan figures, and then somehow he evolved through the drawings of Thomas Nast and others into what we see today, but he had a sleigh with eight supernatural reindeer that can fly. And so the, the Christmas traditions that are pagan continue to change. But the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Incarnation, the truth that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, never changes, never will. Various scriptures in the Bible, including the second chapter of Luke, record the events surrounding the birth of the Messiah. A decree from Caesar Augustus had gone out requiring all people to return to the city of their origin for taxation purposes. Mary, who was pregnant with a child conceived by the Holy Spirit, made the difficult journey to Bethlehem along with her husband Joseph. Both Joseph and Mary were of the lineage of King David. Upon arrival, they found all the inns to be full, but were provided with a stable where Mary could have her baby. At the same time, an angel announcing the birth of the Messiah appeared to shepherds tending their flocks in a field nearby. The stunned shepherds hurried to Bethlehem and found the baby Jesus lying in a manger just as the angel had declared. Although traditional nativity scenes placed three wise men at the stable at the time of Jesus Christ's birth, According to scripture, these wise men visited Jesus later at his home. Because three gifts are named, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, tradition says three men gave them. But exactly how many wise men visited Jesus is not known. The birth of Jesus Christ miraculously fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, including that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, and that he would be a descendant of King David's. The, the concept or the idea of celebrating the birth of Jesus once a year had apparently never occurred to the church fathers. In the first three centuries of the church's history, there was no such thing. And I think God perhaps very carefully avoided telling us in the scriptures when he was born. We can be sure of one thing, it wasn't in late December, and uh, because in the first place shepherds don't abide by their flocks in the fields by night in late December. It's too cold. They take them out in the morning to pasture, uh, uh, protect them while they eat all day, and then bring them back in at night. So it wasn't in late December. <clears throat> it, it, it's an interesting thing, and perhaps uh, an intellectually uh, tantalizing thought, to try to figure out when he was born. 
and it can be done uh, within limits. And uh, if it mattered, and apparently it doesn't matter to God, it probably he was probably born in late September. Some scholars point out that according to Scripture, the birth of Jesus may have taken place in the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles or September 29th. Ironically, this would have placed his conception right around December 25th. The timing of other events such as the temple service of Zacharias and the pregnancy of Mary's cousin Elizabeth lent credence to December 25th as being the date of Jesus' conception. Since Christians believe that life begins at conception anyway, and not at birth as pro-abortionists believe, this may be a more appropriate reason to remember this time of the year as the period in which God came to earth in human form. For some, Christmas today simply means a time to get together as a family. For pagans, it is a deeply religious time to celebrate the winter solstice. Retailers, of course, view it with eyes towards making huge profits. Others use this time to reflect on the birth or conception of Jesus Christ, while many parents use Christmas to perpetuate the myth of Santa Claus to their children. In order to carry on this myth of Santa Claus, we must lie to our children. We must deceive them. We literally must lie to our children. And one of the wonderful things about children is that they naturally believe everything that we tell them when they're small. They trust us to tell them the truth. And if we deceive them in this way, it has to be destructive because at some point in their future lives, they're going to wonder if other things we told them were true. The things we told them about the Lord, were they really true? It plants the seeds of doubt. And anyway, it creates disappointment. It creates disillusionment. To my mind, the question is not so much whether to celebrate Christmas or even how to celebrate Christmas, but to be able to make any decision knowledgeably. Whether you celebrate it or you don't celebrate it, you should know why you're doing so. You should understand what the pagan roots of Christmas are, and with that knowledge, you can discount them or ignore them if you choose to do so. It is not the purpose of this film to tell you which Christmas rituals should and should not be practiced by you and your family. This is between you and the Lord. What Christians should be most concerned about, however, are the growing pagan influences infiltrating every area of our rapidly degenerating society. Recently, we took our cameras to the Nevada desert where we witnessed 35,000 pagans from around the country participating in a week-long celebration of sex, drugs, and hedonism. Here, everything was permissible and encouraged except for the adoration of Jesus Christ. In nearly every ritual performed, Christianity was mercilessly mocked and despised. Each year, the numbers of participants continues to grow. Its attraction is expanding worldwide as it recruits through the Internet. It is sobering to witness what could be the wave of the future unfolding before our eyes. It is not only permitted uh, in the public schools, in the government schools, to celebrate holidays. It is encouraged and in some uh, instances required, but with this, with this uh, uh, condition, they must be pagan. They must not be Christian. And Christmas time, they are, they are certainly encouraged to put on Christmas programs and Christmas plays, uh, but all references to Jesus, all references to the gospel, all references to the incarnation, all references to God must be omitted.
They sing about Santa Claus, they sing about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and God only knows what else they sing about that isn't scriptural. Since the pagan elements in Christmas are so strong, and they provide virtually the, the entirety of the structure and the content of the holiday, there is no Christian element in the holiday, therefore it becomes the ideal uh, politically correct, culturally diverse, uh, multicultural holiday uh, for, for everyone. In the 17th chapter of John, Jesus taught that it was appropriate for his followers to be in the world, but not of the world, meaning that we should be involved in our world so as to have a positive influence, but not become corrupted by it. The mighty Joshua, in challenging his people, said, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the other gods which your fathers served. Choose you this day whom ye will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Rather than setting aside a few days of the year to remember the Lord, Christians should live with a day-by-day, moment-by-moment dedication of their entire lives to Jesus Christ. Then, and only then, will they be able to have victory over pagan influences and to have an impact on society for God the Creator. To those with a heart for evangelism, Christmas time provides a wonderful opportunity to tell others about the true gospel, about God's plan of redemption, and the real purpose for Jesus Christ entering the world. My name is John Green, this is Crash Course World History, and today we're going to talk about Jesus. So this is a Roman coin from around the time Jesus was born in a Roman Empire, and it calls Augustus, the Emperor, the Son of God. So let's just state at the outset that in 4 BCE, being the Son of God, or at least being the Son of a God, was not such an unusual thing. But a poor Jew being the Son of God, that was news. Any understanding of Christianity has to start with Judaism because Jesus was born a Jew and he grew up in the Jewish tradition. He was one of many teachers spreading his ideas in the Roman province of Judea at the time, and he was part of a messianic tradition that helps us understand why he was thought of not only as a teacher, but as something much, much more. Let's go straight to the thought bubble for that. The people who would become the Jews were just one of many tribal peoples eking out an existence in that not very fertile crescent world of Mesopotamia after the agricultural revolution. The Hebrews initially worshipped many gods, making sacrifices to them in order to bring good weather and good fortune, but they eventually developed a religion centered around an idea that would become key to the other great western religions. This was monotheism, the idea that there is only one true god, or at least that if there are other gods, they're total lamoids. The Hebrews developed a second concept that is key to their religion as well, the idea of the covenant, a deal with God. The main man in this, the big mocker, was Abraham. Not to make this too much of a scripture lesson, but it's kind of hard to understand the Jews without understanding Abraham, or Abram as he was known before he had his big conversation with God recorded in Genesis 17. When Abram was 90 years and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I'm going to make a covenant with you and a bunch of cool things will happen, like you're going to have kids and your descendants will number the stars and you can have all the land of Canaan forever. It's going to be awesome. I'm paraphrasing by the way, thought bubble. So God promised that Abram would have kids with his wife, even though the dude was already like 99, but there was a catch. This is my covenant which ye shall keep 
between me and you and thy seed after thee, every man-child among you shall be circumcised. Keep it PG-13, Thought Bubble. Now that is asking a lot from a guy, especially a 99-year-old geezer like Abram living in a time before general anesthesia. But those were the terms of the deal, and in exchange, God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be a great nation. From this, we get the expression that the Jews are the chosen people. Thanks for keeping it clean, Thought Bubble. So some important things about this God. One, singularity. He, and I'm using the masculine pronoun because that's what Hebrew prayers use, does not want you to put any gods before him. He is also transcendent, having always existed, and he is deeply personal. He chats with prophets, sends locusts, etc. But he doesn't take corporeal form like Greek and Roman gods do. He is also involved in history, like he will destroy cities and bring floods and determine the outcome of wars and possibly football games. Stan, no, football games! Probably most important to us today and certainly most important to Jesus, this God demands moral righteousness and social justice. So this is the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, and despite many ups and downs, the Jewish people have stuck with him for, according to the Hebrew calendar, at least over 5,700 years. And he has stuck by them too, despite the Jews being on occasion something of a disappointment to him, which leads to various miseries, and also to a tradition of prophets who speak for God and warn the people to get back on the right path, lest there be more miseries. Which brings us back to our friends, the Romans. By the time Jesus was born, the land of the Israelites had been absorbed into the Roman Empire as the province of Judea. At the time of Jesus' birth, Judea was under the control of Herod the Great, best known for building the massive temple in Jerusalem that the Romans would later destroy. And by the time Jesus died and expanded, Judea was under the rule of Herod Antipater, also, unhelpfully, known as Herod. Both Herods ultimately took their orders from the Romans, and they both show up on the list of rulers who were oppressive to the Jews, partly because there's never that much religious freedom in an empire. Unless you are, wait for it, the Mongols. Or the Persians. Also, they were Hellenizers, bringing in Greek theater and architecture and rationalism. And in response to those Hellenistic influences, there were a lot of preachers trying to get the Jews to return to the traditions and the godly ways of the past, including the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots. And one of those preachers, who didn't fit comfortably into any of those four groups, was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a preacher who spread his message of peace, love, and above all, justice across Judea during his actually average-length life for his time. He was remarkably charismatic, attracting a small but incredibly loyal group of followers, and he was said to perform miracles, although it's worth noting that miracles weren't terribly uncommon at the time. Jesus' message was particularly resonant to the poor and downtrodden, and pretty radical in its anti-authoritarian stance. He said it was easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. He said the meek were blessed, that the last would be first, and the first would be last. All of which was kind of threatening to the powers that be, who, according had him arrested, tried, and then executed in the normal manner of killing rebels at that time, crucifixion. Also, just to put this question to bed, the Romans crucified Jesus because he was a threat to their authority. Later traditions saying that the Jews killed Jesus, very unfortunate, also very untrue. We're not going to discuss Jesus' divinity because one, this isn't a theology class, and two, flame wars on the internet make me so uncomfortable that I have to turn to camera two. Hi there, camera two. I'm here to remind you that three, fighting over such things, like fighting over whether the proverbial cake is a lie, rarely accomplishes anything. Plus, four, what matters to us is the historical fact that people at the time believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, 
the Son of God. And they believed that he would return someday to redeem the world. Which leads us to two questions about Christianity. First, why did this small group of people believe this? And second, why and how did that belief become so widespread? So why would people believe that Jesus was the Messiah? First, the Jews had a long tradition of believing that a Savior would come to them in a time of trouble. And Judea, under the rule of Herod and the Romans, definitely a time of trouble. And many of the prophecies about this Savior point to someone whose life looks a lot like Jesus's. For instance, Isaiah 53 says the person will be misunderstood and mistreated, just like Jesus was. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we didn't respect him. And a lot of the prophecies, like Daniel 7:14, for instance, explain that when the Messiah comes, there will be this awesome new everlasting kingdom. And that had to sound pretty good to people who'd had their autonomy taken away from them. So some religious Jews saw Jesus in those prophecies and came to believe, either during his life or shortly thereafter, that he was the Messiah. Most of them thought the new everlasting kingdom was right around the corner, which is probably why no one bothered to write down much about the life of Jesus for several decades, by which time it was clear that we might have to wait a bit for this brilliant new everlasting kingdom. I should note, by the way, that the idea of a messiah was not unique to the Jews at the time. Even the Romans got in on the action. For instance, the Roman poet Virgil wrote of a boy who shall free the earth from never-ceasing fear. He shall receive the life of gods and see heroes with gods commingling. Sound familiar? But Virgil was writing about Emperor Augustus in that poem, not Jesus, which points again to the similarities between the two. Both called sons of God, both sent to free the earth from never-ceasing fear, but one ruled the largest empire in the world, and the other believed that empire and the world needed to change dramatically. So why did the less wealthy and famous son of God become by far the more influential? Well, here are three possible historical reasons. Reason one, the Romans continued to make things bad for the Jews. In fact, things got much worse for the Jews, especially after they launched a revolt between 66 and 73 CE which did not go well. By the time the dust had settled, the Romans had destroyed the temple and expelled the Jews from Judea, beginning what we now know as the Jewish diaspora. And without a temple or geographic unity, the Jews had to solidify what it meant to be a Jew and what the basic tenets of the religion were. This forced the followers of Jesus to make a decision. Were they going to continue to be Jews following stricter laws set forth by rabbis, or were they going to be something else? The decision to open up their religion to non-Jews, people who weren't part of the covenant, is the central reason that Christianity could become a world religion instead of just a sect of Judaism. And it probably didn't hurt that the main proponent of sticking with Judaism was James, Jesus' brother, who was killed by the Romans. Reason number two is related to reason number one, and it's all about a dude named Saul. No, not that Saul. Yes. Saul of Tarsus, thank you. Saul, having received a vision on the road to Damascus, became Paul and began visiting and sending letters to Jesus followers throughout the Mediterranean. And it was Paul who emphatically declared that Jesus followers did not have to be Jews, that they didn't have to be circumcised or keep to Jewish laws or any of that stuff. This opened the floodgates for thousands of people to convert to this new religion. And the other thing to remember about Paul is that he was a Roman citizen, which meant he could travel freely throughout the Roman Empire. This allowed him to make his case to lots of different people and facilitated the geographic spread of Christianity. Oh, it's time for the open letter? All right. An open letter to the fish. But first, let's see what's in the secret compartment today. Oh, Stan, it's my favorite album, Jesus Christ Superstar, finally available in my favorite format, the cassette. Did I color coordinate my shirt to Jesus Christ Superstar? 
Yes. Dear Ichthys, so check this out. In the first century, when it was still super underground and hipster to be a Christian, you were a secret symbol of Christianity, used to kind of hide from the Romans. Ichthys, the Greek word for fish, was an acronym, and it was a super clever way to talk about religion without anyone knowing that you were talking about it. But you'll never guess what happened. Even in places where it's completely fine to talk about Christianity now and to use, you know, regular Christian symbols like the cross, you have had a huge resurgence thanks to the plastic automobile decal industry. I mean, seriously, Ichthys, I haven't seen a comeback like this since Jesus. Best wishes, John Green. And lastly, Christianity was born and flourished in an empire with a common language that allowed for its spread. And crucially, it was also an empire in decline. Like, even by the end of the first century CE, Rome was on its way down. And for the average person, and even for some elites, things weren't as good as they had been. In fact, they were getting worse so fast that you might have thought the end of the world was coming. And Roman religion offered no promise of an afterlife and a bunch of squabbling, whiny gods. Sorry if I offended adherence to Roman religion, but seriously, they squabble. So even though early Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire and sometimes fed to the lions and other animals, the religion continued to grow, albeit slowly. But then as the Roman decline continued, Emperor Constantine allowed the worship of Jesus and then eventually converted to Christianity himself. And then the religion really took off. I mean, Rome wasn't what it used to be, but everybody still wanted to be like the emperor. And soon enough, there was a new son of God on coins. Thanks for watching. See you next week. Crash Course is... years ago, in a far-flung province in the Middle East, a man emerged from the desert with a message. One that would radically alter the course of world events and come to define the lives of billions. Christianity is a monotheistic religion that centers on the teachings of Jesus Christ, believed to be the son of an almighty universal God. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and his teachings that believers have access to God and the afterlife. The Christian religion began about 2,000 years ago in the province of Judea in the Middle East. It was a sect of the overarching religion at the time, Judaism, and originally had very few followers. What's known about Christianity's earliest days in the life of Jesus Christ comes from four books called the Gospels. The Gospels hold that Jesus was born in the first decade BC in the region of Judea. His father was named Joseph, and his mother was named Mary. According to tradition, Jesus was immaculately conceived by God. In some accounts, Jesus had been trained as a carpenter or a builder, but by the age of 30, he took to preaching, saying that forgiveness of past sins was the key to achieving righteousness. However, the Jewish religious leaders and Roman rulers of the region declared Jesus an agitator. They had him arrested and crucified, nailed to a wooden cross and left to die. But the story of Jesus doesn't end with his death. According to the Gospels, the body of Jesus was resurrected by God, his Father. If Jesus had built the foundations of the Christian faith, it was a Greek-speaking Jew named Paul who made it a religion. According to Paul, 
God revealed Jesus Christ to him in a vision. Paul then converted to Christianity and made it his mission to see Christ's teachings as an institution by establishing churches across the Roman Empire. Paul's actions catapulted Christians from an esoteric Jewish sect to a society of worshipers with reach across the known world. Over the next two millennia, Christianity would go through an unprecedented journey. Scriptures such as the Gospels would be gathered and translated to form Christianity's sacred text, the Bible. The Christian faith would branch to many denominations and be practiced by followers on all seven continents. And the number of Jesus Christ's followers would grow to two billion, making Christianity the world's largest religion. While religious practice ritual, and tradition have changed according to the spiritual needs and desires of its billions of adherents worldwide, a man from Judea's simple message of peace and forgiveness remains just as powerful now as it did 2,000 years ago. The story of Christianity in five minutes or less. The story of Christianity begins, of course, with Jesus Christ, from whom Christianity gets its name. After Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he sent his followers to spread the news of salvation across the world. His followers began in Jerusalem, but quickly spread out to the surrounding cities and nations. The popularity of Christianity exploded in the first hundred years after Jesus' return to heaven. Preachers such as Paul the Apostle traveled throughout the Roman Empire, spreading word everywhere they went. Churches and gathering places for Christians sprang up in nearly every town. At first, these early Christians thought that Jesus would come back within their lifetimes, but as the original disciples grew old and began to pass away, they realized that they needed to prepare for a longer stay on earth, just in case. They began to establish more permanent, more connected churches with greater structure and official leaders. As Christianity spread throughout the land, Jews began to persecute Christians as liars and false teachers. Before this persecution, Christianity had generally been considered a part of Jewish beliefs. Now, Christianity began to be thought of as a religion of its own. Christianity expanded so fast that Roman authorities grew afraid of it. When a large section of Rome burned to the ground in AD 64, Emperor Nero blamed the Christians and made Christianity illegal in the Roman Empire. This began a massive, terrible persecution of Christians that lasted for over 200 years. Christians were forced to meet in secret under threat of torture and death. Finally, in 306 AD, Emperor Constantine came to power. Constantine claimed to have undergone a conversion to Christianity. In 313 AD, he issued the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity legal again and ended the persecution in the Roman Empire. Eventually, Christianity even became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine ushered in a new phase of Christianity. Following the Edict of Milan, Christianity became popular. Christians such as Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine became the great thinkers of the world. The churches, which had lost contact with each other during the persecution, held several important councils in which they established key points of Christianity. These councils established the list of books we now consider the Bible, threw out several false ideas that arose, and made compromises between arguing churches. However, during the last of these councils, it became clear that there were major differences between churches in the East and churches in the West. 
The West had established a formal structure of church government, including deacons, priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and at the very top of the church, the Pope. The East, on the other hand, disliked having one man over the whole church. The problems grew until finally, in 1054 AD, the church split in two, with the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. The Roman Catholic Church grew larger and larger over the next several centuries. As it did, several questionable teachings became part of the church. Some men began to protest against these practices, earning the name Protestants. Some of the most important Protestants were Erasmus, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin. But the most important Protestant was Martin Luther. Luther was a Catholic priest, but he became so upset at the problems in the church that he rejected the Catholic Church altogether and began a whole new type of church. So, after splitting into the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, Christianity split again when the Protestant Church broke off. After this split, Europe went through several centuries of war between Catholics and Protestants. The Protestant Church never formed one large leadership structure like the Catholics did, but instead remained a lot of smaller pieces. When the Americas were discovered, Catholics and Protestant countries began to compete for control of the new lands, sending missionaries along with explorers and conquerors. Catholics were the first to arrive in much of South and Central America, while North America was mostly settled by Protestants. North American colonies looked very attractive to Protestants, who were being persecuted in their home countries. Large numbers of Protestants traveled the ocean to set up colonies where they could freely practice their own religions. These colonies grew large and gradually grew angry at the oppressive countries from which they had come, such as England. Eventually, they declared their independence, and after a period of war, they founded a country known as the United States of America. After the Americas were established, countries began sending missionaries all over the world, including China, Japan, India, and especially Africa. The good news of Christianity has reached all the way around the globe, though with varying levels of success. Today, about 2.1 billion people claim to be Christians, about 30% of everyone in the world. And all this took place in just over 2,000 years, starting with one very unique person, Jesus. societies had been celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter centuries before Jesus walked the earth. In the Norse country, this winter celebration was known as Yule. Around December 21st, the winter solstice, fathers and sons dragged evergreens indoors as reminders of life and set logs on fire as a promise of good fortune. Ancient Rome had its own December festivals. One week before the winter solstice, Romans began celebrating Saturnalia, an orgy of food and drink, in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture. Some Romans, particularly soldiers and government officials, also worshipped Mithra, the sun god. It is believed that to this small but powerful sect, the birthday of Mithra, December 25th, was the holiest day of the year. By the first century AD, pagan traditions were being challenged as Christianity took hold throughout the empire. But Christ's birth date remained a mystery. 
since the Bible doesn't mention exactly when he was born. Since pagan Rome already celebrated the birth of Mithra on December 25th, it is theorized the church adopted the date as the birth of the Christ child. In the 4th century, the church made it official, declaring December 25th as the feast day of the Nativity. The church knew it could not outlaw the pagan traditions of Christmas, so it came to accept them. The evergreens traditionally brought indoors were decorated with apples, symbolizing the Garden of Eden. These apples would eventually become Christmas ornaments. The story of Santa Claus also begins in the 4th century with the death of Nicholas, a beloved Turkish bishop. The anniversary of his death became known as St. Nicholas Day. On December 6th, good children woke to gifts from the kindly saint. Bad children sulked away with nothing. In Holland, he was known as Sinterklaas. 1,500 years later in America, a seminary professor named Clement Clark Moore reimagined the legend of St. Nicholas. In 1822, Moore wrote a poem called The Night Before Christmas about a good-natured saint named Santa Claus who was pulled by a group of reindeer and came down the chimney on Christmas Eve. Like St. Nicholas, Santa Claus spread good cheer and gave gifts to children. Less clear was exactly what this Santa Claus looked like. Then in 1863, Thomas Nast, a cartoonist for Harper's Weekly, settled the matter once and for all with his version of the Christmas Saint. Nast's Santa was rotund and jolly, with a full white beard and a sack full of toys. An American icon was born. My final thought on this, my thought, my opinion, my outlook on this, about Christianity, about King James, about Christmas. Now, first of all, people do not want to open their eyes. People today, in modern time, that is 2019, people do not want, do not want at all People do not want to see for themselves, but then that people do not want to step outside the box in this type of time frame, in this modern time. People are basically closed. But then that close by, you don't want to see the real truth about this whole thing. You don't want to see the truth about this religion called Christianity. People don't want to prove because the thing is when it comes to tradition, saying this is what it is, the mama said this is what it is, the daddy said this is what it is. So if someone told you that you were a young lad or some young girl, someone said, uh-uh, this is what it is. Don't ask no questions. Nothing. Just do what I say. So Christianity that I've been talking about, Christianity is an ancient, ancient religion. 
But then that before it became religious, it was the way that these men, these human beings, these men and women, what they choose to do of a ritual of drunkenness, having sex, even children was part of this. You ain't gonna believe it because of how you've been taught in this religion that was brought forth and came and passed down by man and came forth by the art of a design of a man's point of view when it comes to this son of God, Jesus Christ. Christianity had a, a horrible part to play when it comes to black folks. A little little little, little thing about this, a little, 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 little sneak peek, a little, a little, a little talk about this. Black folks is not going to avert, and black folks is not going to see, black folks is not even going to be like that they know, that they ain't going to believe, black folks. Because Christianity, it, it, it came from, like this, 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 these scholars say, when it comes from, they came that Christianity was given to us black folks of ignorance by a man from this English, of this European that wears a carpet of a suit and a ballroom bottom part as a dress as a suit. And black folks don't believe it, they go to see it because when we were slaves, the slave master took the book us so we cannot know how to read or even find out the evidence of the real truth of the fact that we can't believe it. You don't want to see the truth because you are in a box. But then the box someone told you to say this is what you gonna believe child and don't ask no questions. Santa Claus it's foretold throughout the years to young boys and young girls today that it's a ritual what they do of the switch. It's a ritual of all filth and uh, debauchery and all that stuff. And people do not care. People don't want to see what they need to see of an ancient, 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 ancient. Pagan ritual people don't want to see because it's a tradition, a tradition to carry on throughout the years until there's no more whatever. People don't want to wake up and see. King James was a man that he became a king and he wrote the King James Bible as a, 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 a scholar and he was a person that could write poetry with him. He wrote the poet of his version to King James Royalty, King James Version Bible. Wrote they said, give it to Negro, give it to Black folks. At the perfect, the sound, the slave, the 
Think you're doing something different, but not understanding that it's nothing to do with the sun. This whole thing is brought forth by man. Politics, religion, and sports. Man. Who is this death? Because Satan of the record of Satan, which is satanic, is found in the archive of the heart of the ancient Christianity of how this came to be. It's a Santa Claus of the belief in the folk saying that he binds the devil and he's the devil to the Christianity is the self-ancient and then he call it this whole thing um, that you're dealing now I thought it was the, the sun god was Apollo uh -uh. and that's how you get the sun of god of uh, which you see today that is in, in America America is nothing but a Christian down in the country but people got to see it I see it myself, and that's why I stand outside the religion of the world. Because religion is the greatest weapon as an instrument of control. Religion, I respect if you are a Christian, Muslim, whatever, but when you're so dying, control the population within the population and control society within the looking elders put Jesus in because Jesus was a human just like black folks or the plantation the president said your existence as you get those old land of my land that I put you here to work on my my uh my land and I call it a plantation, you are irritation. Why are you irritation, Negro? Because you keep running all the time. And I can spend money to uh do chains, do So this is all a program. This is all a Dry wide, my name. Dry wide, 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 dry wide,